During this ongoing pandemic, every aspect of school has been pushed into the spotlight, whether they like it or not. One aspect in particular is really in the hot seat, and that is technology. What technology is being used and how it's being used is really under the microscope in schools today. And that was really one of the main motivations for this conversation today with Mike Thulfson. Thulfson. Okay, so it's a, it's a TH. Soft Thulfson. TH. The principal group product manager for Microsoft Education. And we're going to get to unpack what exactly that title means uh, for him at Microsoft. And we also get a little look behind the scenes at how the assistive technology at Microsoft is being made and some insights on the creative process behind that technology. But before we jump into that conversation, I just want to point out that it's clear that Mike and his team is working very closely with teachers, and you'll, you'll hear what I'm talking about as, you go, as we go through this conversation. And I also found it, as a teacher, very refreshing how this assistive technology from Microsoft Education is just a few clicks away for all students. It shows just how considerate the teams at Microsoft are of the students that are using this tech. So without any more delay, this is the Age of Awareness podcast hosted by Stephen Musket and Sean Fallon. And here we go. Mike, I figured the best place to start this conversation is with asking the question, what do you do? Sure. Well, just at the high level, I would say I'm a product manager on the Microsoft education team. And so product manager in the tech world or the non-tech world can mean lots of things. You usually wear lots of different hats and you know every product manager will tell you a slightly different set of things that they do. But for me, uh, Ultimately, I work on helping build products for Microsoft Education. And well, what does that mean? Well, I do things like I talk and work with a lot of customers, in this case, teachers, staff, students, all sorts of people in the education sector, and listen to them and understand their problems, understand their pain points, and do a lot of that. So a lot of customer interaction. And then I also interface very closely. And actually at Microsoft, this might be kind of fun. At Microsoft, the core product, and this is similar to a lot of other tech companies, but we call it the, the BXT is what my team calls it, business experience and technology. But it's really product managers, designers, and engineers. That's really what it boils down to. There's these three groups. And so I work really closely with our engineering team. I work really closely with our designers. And so you know, we go out there and trying to understand, hey, what capabilities, what problems are teachers having? What problems are students having? What are the pain points? And then translating that back with the product team, the engineering, the designers to figure out, okay, well, what might be some ideas on how we solve this problem? And we could solve lots of problems. Which problem should we solve? And what's the order of the things we could do? We can't do everything all at once. And so, you know, there's priority priorities, there's iteration, there's prototypes. We take very early, early concepts and run them by teachers and get feedback and iterate some more. And so there's a lot of that iteration in the process, which I really enjoy as well. And then ultimately, there's also just lots of ways that, okay, now we're going to be building this product. And now we're going to, we run very early user groups where we had, for example, the product I'm working on now called Reading Progress. We had very early groups of, you know, maybe 20 teachers in a private team where we're just giving them very earliest prototypes of things and getting their feedback and seeing what works and what's missing and working back with the designers and engineers. Okay. Oh, we need to change this. Or, oh, what about that? So that part's a lot of fun as well, right? When you've got this little baby, teeny tiny thing that you want to grow up into a, a big thing someday, but that iteration really early on and just working with the customers and getting that feedback, that's a lot of fun too. Cool. All right. So thanks thanks for sort of shedding some light on that. I know from my, my world and my work that oftentimes someone can walk into a situation and they see it and they say, oh, technology can solve this. And in in just sort of that blind application of technology, they almost end up making the problem worse. And I know in in terms of conversations that we've had already prior to this, you've described a lot of the process or approach to really understanding the problem and going out and 
being with teachers and seeing the classroom and collecting feedback when you're, you know, talking up on stage and afterwards somebody comes up to you and says, ah, and they sort of, you know, spill a story out to you and you're like, huh, mm-hmm. interesting. Let me, let me take that back to the team. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of that or, or how that has shaped sort of how you view the work and, and how to get things done? Oh yeah. It's, it's, that's one of my favorite parts of the job is talking to different teachers or administrators or students, or, you know, there's lots of different, I'll just say educators to sort of sum up all the different facets of the the staff administration teachers. But the thing that's interesting is, and I've always done this for a lot of my career, even I used to work in engineering and then I moved to product management later, but I've always been a big fan of, you know, what we would call customer connection. And in the modern age with social media, which we'll touch on a little bit later, but, you know, I can talk to teachers anywhere in the world, anytime, from any country, from any state, almost instantly. And I can talk to them in private. I can talk to them in person. I can talk to them in all sorts of ways. And to give a couple examples of that, again, I'll, I'll just refer to this more recent product we've just announced called Reading Progress. It's a reading fluency product. It's part of Microsoft Teams. So here's an example. A couple of years ago, I'm friends with a lot of teachers on Twitter. And this really brilliant teacher I know put out this fantastic tweet, and it was a blog that he read, but he had some pictures of how he was gathering data for his reading class and using Power BI, which is a much more advanced and complicated application, and making some charts and some interesting stuff. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. We were already thinking about this area of reading fluency. I was like, that's really interesting. So I know this guy, I just sent him a DM like, hey, man, can I get you on a call? I'd love to understand what you're doing. Can you walk me through like this, this set of things that you've been trying to solve and why and understanding that. And so that was one example. Another example, you, you're talking to teachers, we're talking about some of the pain points. And we interviewed a couple of teachers and I, I love these two stories. I don't love them, they're painful stories, but it's an example of when you're just talking to people and understanding. So reading fluency is something that many students have to do where they're practicing reading, you know, their, their accuracy, their speed that they're reading and their expression. It's very common in elementary school, but it's common beyond that. So most teachers know it's important, but it's really time consuming. You know, I got to take little Steven out into the hallway. I have to have him read a passage as I sit next to him with my stopwatch and my paper and my pencil, and I'm circling words. And little Steven is feeling stigmatized because he doesn't want him to read in front of the teacher. And this is a super time. Imagine repeating that like 30 times. And every time you go out into the classroom, your classroom's all alone and the teacher's out there with little Steven. That that happens regularly though. And it's just a pain point. And that's already painful. But this teacher was telling me this story where she said, you know, I had to capture the last reading fluency check from a certain student who I wasn't able to get to because it was so time consuming. She said, it was the, this is, this is June, perfect time frame. She said, it was the last day of school picnic and I had to pull a student behind a tree and take his final reading fluency manually to finish my work at the school picnic. I mean, if that doesn't just make you feel like, oh man, that is there's so much pain. And then another example is we interviewed this educator and this is about gathering reading data, which is another important part of reading fluency. You want to track the progress, you want to track the data and teachers aren't like spreadsheet ninjas on their own. Like a lot of teachers are like, you know, I don't deal with spreadsheets all day. And so this is not an easy process. So this teacher in Georgia, who we had on phone calls when we were doing interviews and design jams, she said, yeah, so last year I made a spreadsheet and I made a template and it captured sort of the reading data that we needed. And then I made a copy of that and sent it to the 150 teachers in my district. So each of them had a spreadsheet template. They could add and fill out the reading data. And then they would send their 150 spreadsheets back to me and I would manually aggregate all that data and I would build another spreadsheet. Uh, and so, <laughs> yeah, the, it, for those of you not watching Sean's actual reaction, it's one of sort of pain on his face. And you hear a story like that and you say, wow. So anyways, you start to hear enough of these examples and stories and hearing from a, a, a really diverse set of people, right? We're not just talking to schools in my area. You're talking to educators from all around the world and from all different parts of the United States. So that is where you really get really interesting insights and nuggets, I think, when you do enough of that over time. Like you don't just talk to three people, you got to talk to a lot of people. You know, you're making me think a little bit about, and this is kind of elevating quickly. So like, let's go up to the 35,000 foot view level for a moment. And that's sort of like, 
this nexus between technology and education. You know, we, especially on this show and 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 on the on the the publication itself, there there's a lot of dialogue about what's the right level of or what's what's the right amount or the right level of presence uh, for technology in education, knowing that there's as much a case to be made for ensuring that students know the content and the material as there is just to be a good, you know, hey, here's how you be a person and operate in the world and interact and connect with your peers and adults and elders and, and authority and um, people who have less than you, you know, just sort of being a good person. There's kind of, it's almost like these things are happening in parallel and and some say, hey, technology is getting in the way and others say we need more technology because it's helping to amplify and spread messages and and improve the efficacy of some of what we're teaching. So what, what would you say when it comes to that dynamic tension between tech and too much tech in the classroom? Where do you land or, or what would you say about it? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And we hear that one a lot. I would say I have maybe two different angles that I would think about that on that where, where I think two specific examples where I think technology can be very helpful in education. And Microsoft, the way we think about it is, is, you know what, we never want to get into the world of what's called pedagogy on like how a teacher should teach and, and all the ins and outs. Like that's what educators are amazing at. And Microsoft can help save them time, help them be more efficient in many cases, help maybe surface things to them really quickly and easily that might take them a lot of time. So that's one area where we really focus on how can we help the teacher get time back? If you talk to almost any teacher in the world and you say, what's the one thing, if I give you one thing, what would it be? And they would say, more time. That's a very common answer. And so if we can give teachers time back by being more efficient and save them. So like, you know, here's an example. I, I do a lot of things with OneNote education as well. OneNote's like a digital binder. I could show you photos of like, Binder upon binder upon binder in the real world that these poor teachers have to lug around for whether it's their professional learning community or their PLC or all sorts of reasons why teachers have to have massive amounts of like paper. <laughs> and when you can make that all digital in a OneNote binder, for example, like they just save enormous amounts of time and energy and stress. Just like, all right, I can find it. It's instantly searchable. I don't ever lose it. I can take it with me anywhere. Scenarios like that, technology is great for that type of stuff. Then on the student side, and this is one that I'm personally really involved with, and we might talk more about later, on the student side, when you're thinking about inclusive technology or accessible technology or assistive technology or you know whatever you want to call it, for example, it's estimated that about 15% of all human beings are dyslexic. And historically, if you have dyslexia, there's a lot of challenges that you will likely have with the printed word on paper and being able to access that. And technology has made massive leaps to make it such that we can really amplify and help with students with dyslexia, for example, in reading. Or it might be dysgraphia, or it might be vision impairments, or deaf and hard of hearing students, and now we've got closed captions on almost everything in real time. Or translating those captions into other languages to not only include the students that might not speak the native language, but their parents. Like during the pandemic, here's a great example. New York City. Historically, that there are so there are hundreds of languages spoken in New York City by parents. And in a pandemic, when you can't have translators in person, like some of these schools would pay for translators in person, okay, you can't have that anymore during a pandemic. And I need to have a meeting uh, with Stephen about his kids. And Stephen doesn't speak the same language that I speak. What happens? I guess I just don't talk to Stephen as a teacher. Well, with Microsoft Translator, we can do real-time translation, either text-to-speech or real-time text, so we can have conversations in real-time and translate everything. Or I can be on a call with parents that speak 10 different languages on a remote call, and we can bilaterally translate everything in real-time. Kind of Star Trek-like, you could say. Scenarios like that, I, there's no way to do that in real life. Uh, well, you, I guess there is if you have, hire your own UN. But if you can't hire the UN to come to your school meeting at night, you're just out of luck. And so there's a lot of really inclusive and accessible technologies that have had major leaps and advances. And like with Microsoft, we think about deploying those at scale. So Microsoft is a scale company and there's estimated to be a billion people with disabilities, like one out of seven is the estimate. 
And so if we have large scale technology that can help include those people and make content accessible, make writing more accessible or math or communication, man, that's you're now including large swaths of society that were left behind maybe previously. So that's those are two areas that I think are, for me, really big ones where technology and education make a ton of sense. I mean, there's other areas as well, obviously, but I think those two are ones where I really like to focus on. You know, you had shared some of the insights earlier in some of our prep conversations about how technology is really changing or allowing or creating different opportunities for students inside this realm of accessibility. So I I know we want to we want to dive a little bit more into that. And let me ask you this one. You've talked about a, a couple of tools. So maybe we could we could get a little bit more specific about sort of how some of these tools work and what some of the classroom challenges were that you had identified and how they've been addressed. So I'll I'll turn it over to you because I know there's there's kind of a few that we could choose from. So I don't know what stands out to you first. Yeah. I mean, I can I I spoke a little bit about reading progress already. I might come back to that, but maybe the other one that I'll talk to that, you know, I'm very passionate about and I'm the product manager for it. So, you know, I might not be completely objective, but in general, it's a great tool in my opinion. And that's something that's called the immersive reader. The the way it was born is actually interesting too. Just for me, you know, I'm people can't see my hair color, but it's gray. And, you know, I'm I'm in my later 40s, let's just say. So I'm no spring chicken. And I had never participated in a hackathon until 2015. Microsoft started up these global hackathons when Satya Nadella became our CEO. So I'm like, you know, I'm in my 40s and I'm at my first hackathon. I'm like, wee! Back in 2015, gosh, almost six years ago, I joined a hackathon team. I was working on OneNote in the education space. So I was just, I just started out as a product manager in education. And I was working on the OneNote team and we'd done a little bit of experimentation with OneNote and dyslexia, but nothing really deep. And there were some other people at the company because the way the global hackathon works is you can work on anything you want for one week, right? One week, choose your project, choose your team, go build something interesting, like make a prototype, do whatever you want. So there were some other folks at the company. We had accessibility experts. We had uh, reading PhDs, sort of reading rocket scientists who knew a lot about reading. We had some researchers and some engineers and, and sort of a group of people, they were thinking about reading and then they reached out to me and they're like, hey, you know, you're doing some cool stuff with education. We heard that you guys did a little bit with dyslexia. We're thinking about some topics. So let's get together and, and do a hackathon team. We got together and we said, hey, let's take the latest science and research around reading. And there's a lot of it. And a lot of it's been around a long time. And, you know, when you have a reading PhD sort of expert in this space, it's great because he's like, oh, yeah, this has been around for 30 years. This one's around for 40 years. This one came out five years ago. It's legit. And so we went and we said, let's take the latest science and research around reading, but focus inclusively on dyslexia as our core customer type, let's say. The hypothesis was if we design inclusively, yes, these techniques will help students with dyslexia or people with dyslexia, but they will likely help all sorts of people based on some of the research and just based on what we thought would happen because many of these techniques aren't unique to dyslexia, but they will really help someone with dyslexia. But think about non-native speakers or ADHD or mainstream readers or you know all, all these different types of people. And so we built this little prototype in the hackathon, kind of experimental. And we interviewed some customers. We, we did some lightweight customer work in the hackathon. And we built this thing called the Immersive Reader. And it had, you know, it was a very small subset of what we have today, but it it took some of these techniques that existed in the world and we sort of digitized them and we added some special sauce, you could say, and we made this Immersive Reader. And it, it actually ended up winning the Microsoft Hackathon, which was totally unplanned, right? My first hackathon, I'm like, woo, that's the, must be how they always are. No, I w- it wasn't like that. We felt very blessed. <laughs> but in general, what happened then was, our VP, and, and this is not always common, I give full credit to our, our education VP, he's like, hey, this, this is amazing. We should go and try to work with more customers and, and potentially productize this for real because it seems like it has potentially great impact. And, and then he's like, hey, Mike, yeah, you're on this hackathon team. Like, why don't you be the product manager and just go figure it out? It's like, hey, sure. At that point, we started working with more and more customers. We, talked, we were talking about parents and students and educators and getting more feedback and trying to build this little experimental hackathon prototype into a real thing. And we ultimately built it into, and it started out as an add-in in OneNote and we put it out there. 
And the story I love to tell about this one, because you, you build something like this and yeah, we're talking to people and we're iterating, but you don't quite know how it's going to be received until you actually show it to a group of people. And so we have these regular calls with educators at Microsoft. We have the sort of our special teacher community where we would demo brand new things and just get early, very early feedback. And so they invited me on a call to present like some new stuff. So I went and I showed the immersive reader for the first time on this call. And there's like, I don't know, hundred teachers on this call and it's gauging the reaction. And I'll never forget if you look, you know, the chat stream that you see going in, in the side window, it just exploded. And people were like, I'm crying right now. Like, oh my gosh, like this is good. I mean, just like chats, like I'd never seen before. We're just going crazy. And I was like, okay, we are seriously onto something here because I, you know, I've never seen a reaction like that. And so then we iterated more and we, we launched as an add-in. Over the last couple of years, we've built it up more and more. So the immersive reader itself, in terms of, well, what, is, what does it do? So there's a set of things. It does, one of the things it does, which is not brand new and revolutionary, but when we built it in, it is now free. It has text to speech with word and line highlighting. So it'll read the words and highlight them in each line as it goes along, which even six years ago, you'd often have to buy an expensive tool to do that. And, and to get the word and line highlighting and all the pieces. So that was now built in. We had something that's called uh, line spacing and letter and word spacing. So a lot of people experience something called visual crowding. Some people with dyslexia, some people without dyslexia. So if you space out the line, letter and words, for some people, it helps increase reading speed and does some other things around comprehension. And that, that's just pure research. Like there have been papers from 2010 that point these things out. We did things early on breaking words into syllables. So using some of our natural language processing at Microsoft, breaking words apart into syllables is something that teachers would painstakingly do working with students with dyslexia or early readers or non-native speakers. And now you can flip a switch and it breaks all the words into syllables. Like again, people would fall out of their chairs when they first saw that. They would be like, what? <laughs> and, and then you can highlight the different parts of speech. So you can highlight all the nouns on the page with a single click or highlight all the verbs or the adjectives. So um, we would color the different ways to identify these different parts of speech. Again, things that would be manually done with teachers that would, you know, now the student can have independence and not be stigmatized. Teacher gets time back. Student can personalize. And then over time, as we've worked with more and more teachers, we turn this into a high scale service now, the immersive reader. So then it's like, oh, now it lights up and Word on the web, it's in Teams, it's in OneNote, it's in Flipgrid, it's in Microsoft Forms, it's in Office, you know, name your app. It's even the Edge browser now. And we added more things, again, based on talking to lots of experts. We've talked to dyslexia experts and teachers and students. We've added things like line focus, which allows you to kind of like a reading ruler. A lot of teachers will have an overlay. Let's say little Sean has challenges focusing when he sees a whole page of text. Teacher would cut out a little rectangle and maybe give you a blue overlay. So you just see one or two lines at a time and you sort of move it down the page manually. We just make a digital version of that um, and you can customize it. Maybe you want a one line window or a three line window or, or whatnot. We added things like picture dictionary. So you can click on a word and get an image representation. Students with autism, students with dyslexia, students who are learning a new language. It's helpful in, in all these different ways. And then the last thing we added that was a really big one a couple of years ago was real-time translation. So all those features of read aloud, syllables, parts of speech, all of that. And now you can real-time translate into 110 languages at this point. So I could have a page of text, say real-time translate into Spanish. It all changes. Then read aloud in Spanish and everything works. Highlight the Spanish syllables, highlight the parts of speech in Spanish. And now it can real-time translate into Arabic and it reads right to left and reads it out loud. And you start showing these things again to teachers in schools where this is a huge challenge. And, you know, they, the technical term is they lose their minds. <laughs> and the thing that and we talked about this, and I think leading up to that background, the thing that I started to learn as I was showing this, I've, been, I've showed the immersive reader innumerable times into school districts, to parents, to students. It's always, you know, it, it never gets old for me because you, know, you see the look on people's faces when they see this technology and they're, they're telling me like, oh my gosh, this is going to like change this student's life being able to access this. So I started showing this and what I found was a lot of historically, I, I do a lot now 
now that I know a lot about immersive reader and dyslexia, I've really moved into the space of accessibility and inclusive classroom and inclusive design and all these different great assistive technologies. But what, what happened was back in maybe 2017 or 2018, whenever I would show our, I'll say that quote, accessibility tools, we'd say immersive reader is like an accessibility tool. And we talk about other great accessibility tools. Whenever I would show that to, let's say a a set of school leaders. We'd have a meeting and the like superintendent and chief academic officer and various instructional leaders and some teachers. And they'd bring me in, they say, okay, Mike is going to talk about our accessibility tool. What would often happen is some flavor of, and again, I, I'm, I'm going to use Frank here as my prototypical example name. They say, Mike's going to talk about accessibility tools now. And the superintendent or someone would say, oh, hey, Mike, um, you should go talk to Frank. Like he works in the basement. He handles all of our screen readers and stuff like that. They would immediately kind of go to blind and low vision or deaf and hard of hearing. And, you know, this clunky screen reader stuff. Talk to Frank. Um, We're going to be over here on the other side talking about all this important education stuff. And after a while, I was like, okay, I think I just need to reframe because oftentimes they just wouldn't think accessibility meant anything than that. So I started talking about framing this as what I would call the inclusive classroom. Like, hey, we're going to talk about reading, writing, math, and communication. It's like, raise your hand if you care about those things in your school district. And (laughs) the answer is always, well, of course we care about that. Great. Then you're going to love these inclusively designed tools that are going to help all students with that. And yes, they might help students with dyslexia or dyscalculia or ADHD or autism or this or that, but they're going to help everyone. These tools are designed to help everyone. And the whole nature of the conversation would just change because they wouldn't instantly sort of pigeonhole the word accessibility to mean X or Y. And so I would start talking about it that way. And it's it's been much better in, in terms of just getting that message across. Because Microsoft's mission is empowering every person on the planet to achieve more. Students are, you know, empower every student to, on the planet to achieve more. It's also like, hey, we're not trying to empower 86% of the students. It's not like 94.3% of the students. It's 100%. And that message seems to, well, especially now, schools are caring even more and more about inclusion, accessibility, equity, providing tools. These are free tools. They're built in. They're mainstream, which is important because many students with different learning needs feel stigmatized. It's like, oh, I don't want to use that tool because it makes me like I like using the funny tools. I, I just want to look like all my friends. I just want to use Word like everyone else. So great, these tools are built into Word. Like you just push a different button in Word. And so that part has been helpful. And I guess the last thing I'd say that Immersive Reader has done, and now it's up to 35 million monthly active users, by the way. So starting at nothing in the hackathon, and now we've announced publicly it's used by 35 million monthly active users. So I'm like, great. <laughs> there Now it's a high scale. Like that's where Microsoft, you know, we're a global scale company. And this is something that can help literacy at global scale. That's one of the reasons why I love working at Microsoft because now you're talking a lot of people and it's going to go a lot higher than 35 million. I can, I can, I'm not going to guarantee it, but I can almost guarantee it um, just because of the pathway that we're on. So Immersive reader that was one of those things where, you know, let's say I'm going to stereotype Sean and Steven might have had this previous view of Microsoft in their head that existed in the year 2011, even though it's the year 2021. Like when, when people think about Microsoft, oftentimes they would have this kind of old version in their head, which played like this. Yeah, yeah, they make windows. They have office. It's really expensive. Um, they're old school even though you know, I might be talking about all this magical, cool new stuff, in your head, Sean, you're really just thinking, uh-huh, it's like all this old Microsoft stuff. And it's just like this thing lodged in your brain, unfortunately. That's our own fault. I'm not blaming you. I'm, I'm bl- it's, it's me, Sean, it's not you. But that's, you can see it. Like I'd be talking to a large group of people and you can just see it in their eyes. You just, it's just there. Now, when I would show, let's say Sean as one of these superintendents, who's, you know, he's got his little 2011 movie playing in his head. And I'd show you the immersive reader, like viscerally, you would see it in action. And what would happen was is you would have massive cognitive dissonance all of a sudden. You'd be like, wait a second. Like I've got this 2011 era on one side of my brain and I'm seeing this immersive reader thing that's like freaking me out in a good way on the other side of my brain. And what would happen was the old 2011 movie would get destroyed almost instantaneously when you would see the immersive reader. 
it would blow up old Microsoft in your head and be like, whoa, this is this is new Microsoft. This is that Microsoft that my friends kind of mentioned to me, but I didn't believe them. Now you're all of a sudden open to all this other stuff that the new Microsoft has been doing that you've kind of written off because you had old Microsoft in your head. And so the immersive reader, I've seen the immersive reader destroy old movie like many, many times at this point, which is good because people should, you know, get to the new decade. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Welcome to 2021. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, this is your co-host, Stephen Musket. And we're going to take a quick break from the conversation. If you're enjoying the conversation so far, be sure to like and subscribe. We appreciate it. And go back and check out our past episodes as well. You can also go ahead and check out the publication, the Age of Awareness publication on medium.com, where we connect over 1,200 authors who are passionate about education reform with half a million monthly readers. And we're also excited to announce that many of our listeners have asked for shorter conversations. So we're going to be offering coffee chats or shorter episodes with awesome guests who talk about similar topics. So be on the lookout for those. Part of what I've seen as a result of the pandemic sort of put the profoundly negative consequences, you know, to acknowledge them, but set them aside for a moment in this conversation. You know, I've been sort of saying it, it was almost like the internet and technology finally delivered. You know, you think about all <laughs> of these companies and organizations that have been talking about working remotely or, you know, saying, oh, you know, we could do it, but yet people are still driving into the office, you know, spending two hours uh, each way on a commute that takes them, you know, planes, trains, and automobiles to get to work. And, <laughs> and then just discovering that like, oh my gosh, I am as productive or more productive uh, in, in many cases, not every case, but in many cases, as productive or more productive at home thanks to technology and our connectivity through the internet, you know, it, it finally, it, it sort of finally showed everybody all at once in a really dramatic fashion, what actually was possible through the use of technology and also what was not possible. You know, there are some things that are missing too. Mm -hmm. And so I know that uh, there was a lot of frustration around it. And so I, I'm curious, since you're sitting on the, you know, the product side of the tech equation, what are some of the things that you've seen stand out as saying, ooh, that's going to be something that will, you know, that, I think that's something that will stick far beyond the experience of this pandemic. And then what are some other things where you said, ooh, that did not work. And uh, we got to go back to the drawing board if, if we're going to actually address what we're trying to address. No, that's a good question. And just to, to rewind slightly to what you were just talking about, where, you know, technology during the pandemic sort of, forced all these things to finally get really figured out, like how well will it work and all that mass adoption. It's interesting. And again, without naming any specific countries or sizes or numbers, I'll just say when the pen, you know, historically, for good reason, a lot of school districts will move quite slowly in deploying technology, you know, like five years with the pilots and then, and then we'll slowly roll out bits and pieces. And, and there's usually different rules or regulations about how fast and what. And when the pandemic hit, what we learned was, there were, you know, in some cases, countries that said, okay, those rules gone. In the next three weeks, we are doing X, Y, and Z, and it's going to be deployed, and we're going to stand this thing up. And it just happened. And I've never seen anything like the speed at which, in some cases, whether it's districts or states or countries, where, you know, sort of like, okay, forget all whatever red tape we had, that's gone. And we're just going to make it happen. We're going to find a way. We're going to get creative. And these teachers who swore they would never use a computer uh, are just going to have to start doing that. It was painful and hard, but you know, a month later, a lot of places were like, okay, we, we survived. We did it. Might not be perfect, but <laughs> we're rolling. <laughs> and so that was just pretty amazing to see. And I think that convinced a lot of people, okay, these things can be done. They might not be done at the same speed, but we can do it. Kind of like you said, it's possible. But then, yeah, to the things that will that will stick around or things that are, are trickier, I think one example, and again, it's something I work on and it's been interesting through the pandemic. So this tool that I work on, this reading fluency tool, it's called Reading Progress, part of Teams. And I mentioned it tries to simplify and take the pain out of doing reading fluency checks. The idea is make it really easy for a teacher to make an assignment using Microsoft Teams, like a Word document or it'll be a PDF or whatnot. 
little reading passage. I assigned that to my class. Little Sean gets that assignment. He opens up the reading passage independently. So he doesn't have to be sitting next to a teacher and it has the passage. It actually, we record audio and video of little Sean reading out loud. And then little Sean turns in the reading passage in the assignment tool in teams. Teacher collects all little reading assignments. And what we do is we open it up and the little video of Sean is in there. We use AI to identify what words Sean has mispronounced, what words he's skipped or inserted or self-corrected, all the things that I might do if I was doing this in person. And I can manually mark things up or I can choose to use the AI to do it automatically or I can like modify it myself. So there's lots of options. And then ultimately, the teacher gets all these insights and analytics and progress on how little Sean and the rest of the class has been doing. Like what's his reading speed, words per minute? What's the accuracy rate? What are the most mispronounced words in my class with this reading passage? Like we can get all that data instantly. So teacher just saved innumerable time, which means teacher makes more reading practice assignments. It's like, if I can do it that easily and save that much time, I will do more reading fluency checks. And what that does is we know from science that actually improves reading fluency. The more you read out loud, the better you typically get at it. Students don't read out loud that much because it's so hard for teachers to do that whole process. And it's so stigmatizing because kids don't want to read out loud in front of people, but they'll do it to a computer. So that whole, like that whole process is like a self reinforcing positive feedback loop. Like teacher gets more time. They make more reading out loud assignments. Student gets better at reading out loud that, you know, that the whole, the whole thing goes positively. We were working on that pre-pandemic, like it's a great time saver and analytics and progress. All those things are great pre-pandemic. Pandemic hits, all of a sudden that becomes like, and we hadn't finished it, but it became, oh, that could be the only way that a teacher could do reading fluency checks because it's remote. And so Microsoft sped up the development of this tool during the pandemic to say, oh my gosh, this is a really powerful scenario. Now, when the pandemic ends, all those benefits I just talked about are still in place. Teacher can still make more reading fluency checks. Students can still do it independently. They don't have to be sitting next to the teacher. There's no more go to the class picnic on the last day of school <laughs> behind a tree like I talked about. And there's no more sending out 150 spreadsheets and collecting them all and making them all aggregated because all those analytics are captured automatically. So those are benefits where we're like, yeah, the, you know, the pandemic might have made it even more apparent how important reading fluency is. And there's a large scale Stanford study that showed reading fluency went down 30% during the pandemic uh, with, with K through five, which is it. I mean, reading fluency wasn't great to start and it got 30% worse. We need a lot more reading fluency practice. And guess what? Back to my pop quiz for Sean, put you on the spot. If you could ask a teacher, what's the one thing they could have more of, what would it be? Uh, I'd have to go with time. Time. And is uh, reading fluency and gathering a day, is that time consuming or is it really easy historically? Historically, time consuming. Yeah, so you've, you've aced the quiz, Sean. And so guess what? We now have a tool that makes that whole process in a self-reinforcing positive feedback loop way easier, better, saves massive amounts of time. So that's an example where I think it makes a ton of sense where it's just going to be good overall, whether there's pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, during a pandemic. Now, things that I would say, I mean, things for us that when the pandemic hit where we weren't ready for it because it wasn't fully designed, like the Teams meetings, right? If you compare the way Teams meetings were, Zoom too, for that matter, they were, they were more ahead, but Teams meetings, right, as a pandemic hit, were they ready for a pandemic? No, um, because they weren't designed for that scale and every single feature, especially in schools that you need to control all these widgets and knobs. And there's a lot of requirements for student safety and bullying and scale and how many people are on a screen, all these things. And so we've adapted. And I think, you know, Teams now is really powerful and it's fantastic for, for online learning, the meetings case. And then when the pandemic goes away, people, will still do these things, but they're not going to be doing it at the same scale. They're not going to probably have the same needs for these teams meetings. You know, they, they will for certain aspects of hybrid learning or, you know, for snow days, or there's various reasons why you need meetings to be great. We're not, I wouldn't say we did a bad job with it. We, we adapted very quickly, but when the pandemic ends, we don't expect the same use cases to be all day long and all day night that they've been during the pandemic. And so that's one where 
I would say post-pandemic, we'll we'll go back and evaluate like, okay, what in a post-pandemic world, what are the most important needs of teams meetings, for example? And they're going to probably be different than they have been the last year. And we'll go and we'll fiddle with stuff. Um, we know that if we need to do it again, you know, teams can do all the things in meetings that it's historically done, but we'll be changing probably some of the direction. Like we're not going to focus as much on X, Y, and Z that we might've been the last year. And we're going to probably focus on some different things in, in the future. I want to go back up to that 35,000 foot view and ask a, another philosophical question of sorts. And this has to do with AI, you know, for listeners who have listened, you know, over the course of this season, they'll probably recognize you. Know, I lean on this book a lot. It was a book called Weapons of Math Destruction. And it talked about some of the inherent idiosyncrasies of using technology and how bias or other sort of unwanted phenomenon can show up as a result of the coder knowingly or unknowingly or the, uh, the scientists knowingly or unknowingly baking it into how things operate. And so I, you know, I'm curious, Mike, what's your, what's your stance on that? I know in that book, they talked a lot of, they talked about a lot of processes that are being taken over by artificial intelligence, like loan applications or parole for folks in prison or acceptances into educational institutions. You know, I know what we're talking about is slightly different, but I think it touches on it in terms of who receives attention and who doesn't. You know, if suddenly the teacher's not necessarily the one who's doing the initial flagging, that that does change the dynamic in a way. And so I'm curious, you know, what 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 are your thoughts or reactions to sort of the premise that I'm putting out there that there's a, a phenomenon that's worth paying attention to when using AI in the classroom? Yeah, no, this is a topic we talk a lot about in our team and inside the company, there are some processes that we go through as well. I think with the technology we're working with on reading progress, for example, which is speech to text, meaning you know, we're listening to the student read, we're comparing it to some things and, and making some sort of confidence intervals behind the scenes on what's happening, mispronunciation or skipping words, et cetera, that, well, one thing we've done is, A, uh, you can turn it off. With, so, so in our system, for the teacher, I, I say you can go into manual mode in your car or you can use automatic. Even if you choose automatic, you can still go manually, go and say, nope, that was wrong. Nope, that was right. So you can go and it's not like an all or nothing. And that's that's at a base level, I think that's useful, right? Don't force people to, it's, it's not like a mode you're forced on. The other thing that we added for ours, because there's many accents, there's students with speech impediments, there's first grade readers versus 12th grade readers. There's, just all, there's a whole gamut of, of people. One thing we have is, and my nickname for it is the picky dial, but we call it pronunciation sensitivity. And what that means is a teacher before, during, or after the assignment is done, or I should say before or after, you could set the sensitivity to default. But let's say you have, a, here's the good example is I have a student with a speech impediment. And that's, you know, the, the default settings on the picky dial are marking things wrong that, that I actually know are right because I know this student and how they, what they are trying to say. I could change the picky dial and make it less sensitive to say, oh, don't be so picky on this student and leave it to default. Or I could, I like to joke, you know, if you're, um, for me, not saying all, I had a French teacher who was very picky in high school. And let's say I was using this for, because this is a great language tool as well, right? It's not just for early readers. Think about all the people learning new foreign languages or world languages. My French teacher, the only time that he got to hear me read was in class. And I hated doing it out loud, hated it. And so my French teacher, if he was using this tool, he can make a French assignment, right? Hey, everyone read this French passage out loud and turn it in. And I get the video and the audio. He would turn the picky dial up to high. He'd be like, I'm going to crank that up and be super picky. I don't care. So we give that flexibility that actually makes the AI react differently based on what the So the teacher can kind of control the, the sensitivity. And we, we have things we can do behind the scenes to play. Like we're not shipped this yet. It's still in preview. But Based on feedback, we can change those settings, those confidence intervals behind the scenes of like, hey, when they, and maybe we add more notches on the picky dial. Maybe three is not enough. Maybe we need to have five. We, those are things we can change. Then the other thing that we do is we are always gathering more and more data sets. We don't train our data on students live speaking. A lot of people are like, oh, you're listening, you know, Microsoft's listening to my kids read in there. No, we're not doing that. 
we are taking the data separately. You can purchase data sets and you can train your models on official data sets. And so you can go out and get different data sets of all different sorts of accents, all different sorts of ages, all sorts of different everything. So we're constantly doing that and training our models behind the scenes. And then it's almost like shipping an update. Like every three months, we might ship an update to the model and it gets a little bit better with certain types of accents or certain types of ages. And it'll just magically happen and you might not even notice. And it's like our dictation. If you compare our speech to text that's built into Microsoft Word from like two years ago and you compare it to today, it's night and day. It's so much better today. We've just been improving that model every couple of months, a little update chips and it could get better and better and better and better. And, and so it's done in a very legit way. Then the third thing that we have at Microsoft, which is actually I've been, I've taken our feature through this. We've kind of got an ethical AI, like an ethical AI review board. It's a whole set of processes and gateways in place. And there's a board, there's a set of people. And you're like, hey, if your feature has any implications on sort of what we call ethical AI, kind of like you're getting at, um, we're going to ask you like a lot of questions about it. <laughs> and we're going to dr drill in and really understand like what's the possible harm here? What about this? How does that work? What would happen with this set of group or that? And so there are a whole lot of processes and gateways that it has to go through internally to make sure that, and this, this board is a couple of years old. We haven't had it forever, but uh, I've gone through it with this feature, for example. And there's other features too. We have translation features. We have text-to-speech, like neural text-to-speech, which is really high-grade sounding uh, text-to-speech voice. And there's custom neural TTS. There's lots of different flavors of AI at Microsoft. There's you know, more that I could name on my hands and toes. But there are many different processes to sort of, to your point, to make sure that we keep it ethical as much as possible. You know, it's never going to be perfect because there's no such thing as perfection. But I think a lot of the things that you might have seen three or four years ago where you're like, whoa, what's going on here? I think we're, we put some some um, guardrails in place to help sort of go against that where possible. Yeah, it takes me back to my college days when learning about um, system thinking and sort of recognizing that there might be some obvious actions to take, but that they create unintended consequences. And so anytime you're operating inside of a system, you like, Okay, there's the first order impact, but what about second order, third order, and even more so, how, how do those things all tie together to create other sort of uh, emergences, and, and what do you do about that? And, and, and to your point, there's probably nothing you can do because it's, you know, it, it's impossible to be perfect about it, but uh, it's, it's interesting to hear sort of the process or the method to get as, as much insight uh, as possible. I want to go in sort of a, not necessarily left turn, but jump tracks a little bit. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about what you're working on and, you know, some of the insights that you've had around that. And I'd like to turn the spotlight really on you. Uh, you know, it sounds like you've had quite a, quite a career that has not totally been necessarily a educational, like I, I don't get the sense that you started out saying, oh, I'm going to get into the, edu the world of education. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about your story uh, as Mike and how you ended up where you are. And maybe we could start with, you know, a big thing for us is we, we think, uh, you know, here on the show that life sort of happens in moments and that there are these key moments and they might not necessarily be big ones like you won the lottery. They could just be small, little, tiny things, but with big impacts. And so maybe you could share a couple of moments that have happened for you that have that have really pointed or oriented you in this direction. You know, where you were, what you were doing, what it sounded like, what it smelled like, kind of telling us a little bit about, hey, this is this this sort of changed how I saw the world, even though it was small or big. Yeah, no, that's a that's an interesting topic. Yeah, I mean, I've so I've been at Microsoft almost twenty six years. I was I'm like a lifer. I went straight from college directly to Microsoft was my first job, and I started on the very first version of Outlook, so Outlook V one before it ever even shipped. So that's how old I am. And uh, Outlook used to be revolutionary, and now you know it's not perceived maybe that way. But um, and I started in engineering, so I did not start in product management. I don't have a background in education. So the first, I'm going to say like eight, nine years of my career, I was, you know, I was in engineering. I worked in different products. I, I became an engineering manager. 
And then in 2004, I moved over to Microsoft OneNote. I don't know if you know what OneNote is, but it's a Microsoft product. It's like a digital binder, a digital notebook, note-taking and, and other stuff. And I joined that team and it was brand new back then. OneNote was like brand new. Nobody knew what it was really. And I was in engineering, but we were working on sort of all this really interesting, cool stuff in OneNote. And back to those, those moments I had... I remember I was actually in a class at Microsoft back when you'd have written classes and it sort of took me back to being in school. And I was like in some, I don't know, some manager training. I can't remember what it was, but I was seeing all this paper and, and content and curriculum and, and delivery of stuff. And I just had this thought, like we're working on all this pretty at the time, revolutionary stuff in OneNote that no one knew about. And I just had this notion like, wow, we could like, everyone thinks about OneNote as like a note-taking, you know, next-gen notepad, which is, you know, that's cool, but it's not that cool. Um, but I said, wait a sec, we could actually put the education process inside of OneNote. And the way that like the, the you talked about like the, the mental like smells and sights, the thing that I used to think about by putting everything into OneNote, like the curriculum, the feedback, the collaboration, the content, like the everything, do you ever do, when you were a kid, I don't know if they do the same, or the parachute dance, you know, when all the kids have a big parachute and they play the music and you're like in second grade and all the kids like shake the parachute. And then the last thing is you lift the parachute up and everyone gets inside the parachute, like, like a big dome. So the way I would describe it is like, imagine like one note, people would think about one note as like this thing that they were outside of, like I'm typing my little notes, which is good for, but I was like, I think about, I used to call it next gen learning. It's like you put the parachute over yourself and inside, like you, like everything's inside of OneNote. You almost like invert it. So like you put everything in there. And at the time, OneNote, OneNote did co-authoring before Google even bought Google Docs and did co-authoring. So like we were revolutionary in the co-authoring. We were doing a lot of pretty cool stuff in 2004 and five, way before most people. I would like, I had like this thing where I was like, oh my God, OneNote could be this next generation learning tool. It could transform. Like at the time it was just going well, way over people's heads. They're like, OneNote, that's like a note-taking tool. What are you even talking about, Mike? Because they barely knew what OneNote was, let alone like all this crazy, you know, inverting, putting everything in OneNote, next-gen learning. And so most people were like, you know, okay, whatever, dude. But at the time, back in 2004 and five, the only places where they were doing what's called one-to-one -one computing, meaning one laptop for every kid, that's called one-to-one -one computing. Very uncommon back then. But there were some places like in Norway, because Norway had a lot of money from oil and they're they like, we're going to buy a laptop for every kid in middle school. And so there were a couple of countries like Norway and Finland that were doing one-to-one -one computing way before the United States. And so I started doing a lot of experiments with this OneNote next-gen learning. And I, re I just started randomly as a side project, like a passion project. It wasn't my day job. Um, would reach out to teachers. I started writing a blog about OneNote and education. I'd try to reach out to people, understand what they were doing, tried to sort of get this idea of this next-gen learning out there and, and talk to people. I did a lot of stuff with that for almost a couple of years as a side project. And we made some progress and we got some cool things added to OneNote. But I would say ultimately it never took off. It was probably like before it's time, you could say. And I was kind of known as like the crazy OneNote education guy inside of Microsoft. Like, oh, here's Mike again, talking about OneNote education stuff. So, <laughs> so, then, so then I sort of, I ended up moving to a different team. I ended up, you know, building things like SharePoint Cloud and Microsoft Project and early building the Office 365 Cloud and engineering and really hard work, really fun work. But I sort of like closed the chapter on education. I was like, ah, I guess that's just never going to work out. So this is where, this is the part, the other moment where it gets really interesting is like three years later, maybe four years later, I think it was four years later, 2013 or 14. And unbeknownst to me, there's this guy at Microsoft, he's a researcher, he's named Jonathan Gruden, brilliant researcher. And it turns out unbeknownst to me, he was out there doing research in across different parts of the United States, looking into one-to-one -one computing. Cause all of a sudden, Testing required that all these schools started getting laptops more and one-to-one -one computing started becoming more popular. And he was doing research on this whole phenomenon of one-to-one -one computing in the US. And he was seeing some things happening with other schools that were using OneNote in some really cool and incredible ways. They were doing all this cool stuff. Some of it was stuff that I've been, you know, from long ago that I was always trying to get people to do, but they just on their own discovered and they were hacking OneNote, doing some cool things. So this guy, Jonathan Gruden, came back and, and wrote this little white paper because he's from Microsoft, and he sent it to the head of OneNote. 
And I, I, kn- I know the head of one or I did the time I, I, it was this, I worked with this guy, but I wasn't on the one note team anymore. I was like doing other stuff. So he writes this paper and he's like, you know, one note in the one-to-one education world could be the killer app in education. Like, do you realize like the incredible cool stuff that could be done with one note? And this guy, the head of OneNote, his name is Chris Prattley, looped me into this email and he's like, oh yeah, you should talk to Mike Dolphson. He's been saying that for like 10 years. Um, <laughs> and so I got connected with this guy, this researcher. And so him and I got together and sort of brainstormed. We talked to a bunch of schools. We saw some cool things. We're getting hacked together. We interviewed a bunch of teachers. He had done a bunch of research and we ultimately proposed this little thing called the OneNote class notebook. And it's kind of like the easy way to put it is, it's this tool that lets a teacher set up their OneNote in this very specialized way that's designed for education that they could never set up on their own. It's like an easy button for teachers to set up this sort of supercharged, super cool notebook that you could put all your curriculum in. You have a collaborative area. You can just do all this cool stuff that I'd always sort of dreamed of long ago. And we pitched it to the OneNote team and they actually ultimately agreed to help us get some people to help build this thing. Again, almost like a hackathon project. It wasn't like a giant investment. They're like, yeah, we have some people over here that might be able to help you out a little bit. We started building this. And at that point, I went to the, there was a brand new head of OneNote who is now the VP of education. His name is Ron Megiddo, but he started out, he took over for OneNote. And I went to him and I was like, hey man, I know a lot about OneNote and education. We're building this class notebook thing. And like, could I become a product manager and just like work on this full-time in education? And he's like, sure, come on over. It's like, great. <laughs> so I did that. And we built this little experimental thing called a class notebook. And we started doing early testing with teachers. And, and similar to Immersive Reader, they're like, oh my God. They were like losing their minds. They're like, this is so amazing. It's revolutionary. It's gonna all this cool stuff. So from then, long story short, I was on the OneNote team. Um, we built this class notebook up. Now it's, I don't know what the last numbers we shared. I think the numbers were something along the lines that we've, you know, without going into details, there are well over a hundred million student notebooks created with this class notebook tool over a couple of years, sort of aggregated, but like it's used a lot. Let's just put it that way. Um, and it's, I still, you know, I'm a huge OneNote fan still. I've got a OneNote cape, you know, all this fun stuff, but um we, we built this class notebook. And then at the same time is when the education team at Microsoft sort of got reconstituted and reformed. And because all these things were happening with class notebook, um, they just moved me over to the new education team. And, and I was great. I'll be on the education team. I'm still under the same guy, Iran Megiddo. And then that is back to the immersive reader. That is about the time when this hackathon spun up. And so another moment was that first global hackathon, and I'd never done a hackathon. And these other folks were like, oh, there's this Mike Thalston guy doing all this stuff with one on education, this class notebook thing. Like, you should go talk to him. He might want to hang out during your hackathon. And so that sort of connects the dots backwards leading up to that hackathon, I would say. And then the immersive reader got built. And I think, you know, that was another moment that hackathon and sort of doing that was, was pretty impactful. And I think Probably the last, the last cool moment was this new reading progress thing that we finally built. And it's taken a couple of years because it took a very winding path. It was an experiment. It was an incubation. You know, we did design jams. We interviewed hundreds of teachers about reading fluency. We've interviewed reading experts. Like the designs have gone all over the place. Like, you know, we, we have old pictures and old concepts that like make no sense if you see the thing now. But again, you're, you're sort of experimenting along the way. And that one has been a lot of fun because from the get-go, from ground zero, we've had engineering, design, research, content, PM, like customers, everyone. It's been a very unified, like from the ground up, all the team involved with the entire process, right? Where sometimes with software development, you have more people involved in one part and then you know engineers get involved later or design does this and then it's a little more bifurcated. And I feel like the process, like, let alone the product, the actual process and the way that the team operates and the way that all these disciplines sort of fuse together has been really cool. And it's been one of the best projects I've worked on in terms of how that, you know, there's that saying from long ago that the software reflects the team that built it. I don't know if you've heard that saying, but yeah, it's a sort of a famous old software book that basically they say you can look at a software and you can understand like how tight or not tight the team that built that thing was because it'll come out in the software. And so I think it's, it's true in many cases, I think. 
like some of the worst junkiest software you've ever had. Like the team that built that was probably, you know, shattered all over the place. But this team that's built has been a great team. And I, I feel like our the the product kind of reflects that team. So those are probably a lot of the, the product moments. And then the other part that has been really bizarre in a fun way and really got crazy during the pandemic. You know, I've, I've been very customer connected. A lot of social media in terms of like Twitter and working with teachers and getting on Skype calls with teachers to pick their brains about stuff, going to conferences over the years and meeting with educators. So I've always been very customer connected. And during the pandemic, uh, a moment I remember, again, a sort of an inflection point was everyone was, all teachers were like, oh my gosh, I the hunger for information like in middle of March was off the charts. People were like, what do I do? How do I learn about teams? I was told to do this. How do I, you know, people were just grasping for any information on how to do stuff. And they're like, I don't have time for a day long class. <laughs> you know, I need it now. And so I made this very simple video as a feature on how to use the screen recorder that's built into PowerPoint. It's like a small feature, but it's how to record my screen and make a video with PowerPoint. And because all these teachers were like, I need to make recordings for my class. I need to try to, you know, all these videos and flip learning and all this stuff. And I made this little like throwaway two minute video and I posted it on Twitter and it got like 70,000 views in like a day, which, which is a lot for me on Twitter. Maybe some people get lots more views than that, but it's like a pretty viewed thing. And the response was, oh my gosh, this is so helpful. Thank you for making this. And I was getting barraged with questions, asking me the same thing over and over again. Mike, how do I do this? Mike, how do I do that? Mike, where can I find this? So that maybe I'll try to make like, I, I knew what a YouTube channel was, sort of. I, I never actually subscribed to a YouTube channel in my life. I would usually go to YouTube to watch a video, but I, I'd known that there was a concept of a channel. And I'm like, maybe I should make one of those YouTube channel things and try to figure out what that is to help so I could like post a video that anyone can just go see. And I don't have to keep like making this little thing on Twitter and answer the same question 50 times. And so I talked to some people internally. I'm like, Hey, is it okay if I try to experiment with the YouTube channel? I'm like, sure. Go for it. It's like a pandemic. Like people need help here. So I did. And so I started posting videos to this YouTube channel and some of them got really popular. And so I've started, I used to, I used to, like mock, I was like, what the heck is a YouTuber? Is that a real thing? I started to laugh, like YouTube channels, a YouTuber, really? I used to mock Twitter. I, I always joke, I used to mock Twitter about in 2010, like, isn't that a Justin Bieber thing? Like, what is Twitter? Like, you know, people post what they're having for lunch. Like, I don't get that thing. And then I got into Twitter and now I, I use Twitter a lot now. So then I would mock YouTubers. Like, is that a real job? Like, what the heck is a YouTuber? Now all of a sudden I'm like making YouTube videos and I have my YouTube channel. And so I've, they've gotten really popular with teachers during this pandemic. So I've got teachers who are saying, thank you. Like I don't have to spend all this time making like PD videos for my school. I just point them to your video. It's super helpful. Thank you for, for helping save me all this time. So I don't have to do that stuff or I can learn about all the latest teams updates really fast and not have to waste time like scouring all this stuff. So that has gotten kind of popular. And then the thing that took it even further, which is even more weird for me, um, Another thing I used to make fun of, TikTok. <laughs> I think a lot of people our age are like, TikTok? I just don't get it. So as an experiment, I'd been making these YouTube videos. And I was like, oh, people are watching videos on TikTok. This whole TikTok dancing. Oh, I don't get it. Like, no way would I ever dance. And by the way, I don't still. But I was like, maybe I'll put a couple of videos on TikTok just to see what happens. Like, I like to experiment with stuff. So I put out a couple of videos in like fall. And they didn't, I, you know, they didn't do very well. I, a few views and I, you know, I had like a hundred followers or something. So I started, I was like, ah, oh, I don't have time for this. Then in, in January, some good teacher friends of mine, they pinged me. They're like, Hey Mike, there's like five teachers and we're going to experiment with TikTok as like a way to deliver professional development, right? Like short micro learning. And you want to join us? I'm like, oh, sure. What the heck? I'll hang out with some teachers. Like I'll make some TikTok videos just for kicks. And I started researching a little bit more on how TikTok works and sort of trying out different things. And lo and behold, some of this stuff like took off. And so these micro tips is what I call them, like bite-sized learning, less than one minute, like a micro learning bite-sized chunk. And it turns out during the pandemic, that's about all people want. They don't want a, a six-hour PD class. They're like, I can take a minute. <laughs> and maybe make it kind of funny and it's even better. And so I've now got like over 300,000 TikTok followers from these little micro tips. 
and just in like a few months. So all of a sudden, like <laughs> everywhere I go, they're like, oh, random people are like, oh, I watch your TikTok videos or oh, I saw your YouTube videos. Like a guy that I work with who's probably in his 30s pinged me the other day and he's like, dude, I was home visiting my parents and I mentioned uh, somehow my, my dad said, oh, I've been learning all this stuff about Microsoft watching these videos. And my friend's like, I looked over his shoulder. It was like your friggin' videos he was watching. And he had no idea. Like, so it's all this random stuff that was not in the plan. Just like p- pandemic helping out some teachers is, has uh, gotten more popular, I guess. <laughs> that, I, I really like that. And I, I think it's always, it's always so great to hear how these stories, I mean, you can't plan them out. You know, yeah. you can't, you just have to go live them. You got to go yeah. live them out uh, to actually find out how it goes. So I, I really like that. I, I got a question for you. What do you think draws you or endears you to education versus any other sort of, you know, field or, you know, versus like microfinance in sub-Saharan Africa or um, cybersecurity, you, you know, like what, mm-hmm. what draws you to the world of education? I, I think for me, the, the most obvious answer is just the, the scale impact. I mean, there's impact and that's why a lot of educators are drawn to Hey, I want to impact a child's life. And I'm not an educator, but I do work at a company that has large scale. And so being able to work in education and help educators, but also more importantly, even helping students at scale, like for example, especially with things like immersive reader and now reading progress, if you can impact students' life outcomes, for example, there are studies that show if you don't get a handle on reading by about fourth grade, your life outcomes go off a cliff for the most part, not guaranteed, but the chances are you're in a world of hurt. And so if we can help students with things like core literacy or writing or, or things that will help them have improving their life later on, like who wouldn't want to do that? And so that's at least I would want to do that. You know, do I want to work on some, you know, Find not the microfinance is good, but like I wouldn't ever want to work on like, oh, I'm doing investment banking to make micro pennies for millions more people. Like, I don't even care. No way. Uh, there's a lot of things where like, I'm glad someone likes to do that because I don't want to do that. Um, I would much rather help students with reading and literacy, let's say. Uh, I like to call it like literacy at scale is something that I could work on that day and night and you wouldn't have to pay me to do that. I just want to do it. So that's why I'm inspired by helping educators, helping students, and, and, and helping them at scale. I think that's a great place to stop right there, right? Um, again, if you enjoyed the conversation, be sure to subscribe and be on the lookout for our future conversations. We have a lot of amazing guests coming up that we're excited to share with you. So thank you again. 